Be aware of the life around you and watch the buds open and the bees collecting pollen and the butterflies courting and the caterpillars feeding fast to allow safe rest times. Take time to wonder and admire from the troubles of our time. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. In the way race and gender, education and work and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and with this episode, we all get the unique treat of listening to and learning from lifelong naturalist Dr. Elizabeth Bernays. Liz is an entomologist by training, having received her PhD from the University of London. But her love of the natural world began as a child in Australia, where she was free to roam and to watch and befriend the animals and insects who lived there. She began her career as a field entomologist for the British government, took an academic post at Berkeley, and followed that with serving as the head of entomology with the University of Arizona, where she is currently a Regents Professor Emerita. Along the way, she obtained an MFA in writing with the University of Arizona and has since been contributing beautiful literary nonfiction with the effect of reawakening any reader's love for the natural world. Liz describes herself as a biologist-turned-writer with over 200 scientific papers, books, and several popular biology articles. She's also published 50 poems and essays in a variety of literary journals and authored three nonfiction books. Her newest, Across the Divide, The Strangest Love Affair, was published to great acclaim in May of 2023. With her wife, Linda Hitchcock, she has also published three children's books. Enjoy this time with Liz Bernays. I surely did. Well, good morning, Liz. Good morning. I hear it's a little cooler this morning in Tucson, Arizona. Yes, it's finally getting a little bit of fall. That's great. That's great to hear. Yeah. It's been a long, hot summer, and so it's good that there's some cooling going on. Well, the other question that I want to ask, because you mentioned this in conversations before we got here on the podcast, is how all of those um, larvae are doing. You call them the babies. Oh, (laughs) Well, they're just fine, and actually next, on the 1st of October is the um, Arizona Insect Festival, and they're going to be fully grown at that time, and so they'll have 50 huge larvae on a big oak branch at the Insect Festival. Oh. And some, some, some information for all the kids that come by. So they're going to be put to good use before they're released into the wild. And you collected them from the wild how long ago? Well, we collected the moth 
out in the wild um, about a month ago. These are slow-growing creatures, and the oh. moths spewed their egg, its eggs all over the cage, so I felt I had to rear them. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. So perhaps in keeping with the title of our, our um, podcast, which is How It Looks From Here, um, that's part of the way it looks. What else would you say if I asked the question today, right now, how does the world look to you? Well, it doesn't fill me with optimism. I mean, I think the worsening climate issues and the ensuing destruction of agricultural and urban centres would likely lead to more extreme division of rich and poor. And I think this would encourage major conflicts. But I think climate change also adds to the second problem of natural habitat destruction, together with the plants and animals that sustain us economically and psychologically. I think of major extinctions, a fracture of wilderness, loss of pollinators mm. and other small creatures that feed over 90% of birds. So now in 2023, we're seeing a worldwide decline in numbers and kinds of insects. Um, estimates of our current losses vary and the numbers differ with different insect groups, but it seems we are down by about 40%. Oh my. Some species are changing their ranges as climates change, but there are perils when host plants don't always make the same changes. So the insects will become more widespread and then their plants are not there. So there are all kinds of mismatches with the climate change. Have there been epochs in the past that have um, had similar symptoms? Not that we know of. I mean, there, there have been major catastrophes, of course, which have caused the extinction of all kinds of animal groups. But in terms of this gradual climate change, this is something new. Okay, that's helpful. Well, it's clear that you have a profound love for the natural world. And I think it would be great for our listeners to learn how that came to be. Well, um, there are several things. I mean, my feeling is that the idealism of young people can help us out. And I was an idealistic young person. My hopes also in teachers who encourage children to see and listen to reality and to develop an interest in nature and why we need to protect it. I was lucky personally to have a mother and teachers who took me down the path of enjoyment in the world around me. I have to give them the credit for that. What fun I had as a child, seeing jewel beetles in flowers, watching butterflies hopping from plant to plant. It was all because my parents had a wonderful garden and they took me out there to help grow stuff and there I saw all the wonders of jewel beetles and butterflies. But the excitement in finding things out about nature has never left me. And I believe that this kind of enthusiasm is latent in all of us and will be critical to our future of saving what is left of the wilderness in all its parts. In some countries now, local um, movements are encouraging wildflowers and seeds instead of lawns recommending plants for bees and other pollinators to be put among the vegetables. So I think there are a few hopeful signs 
But um, in general, I think um, our par- we're responsible as parents or teachers to help young people to go on this path. That's my hope. Well, I know that you were in um, Australia when you were raised. Well, I grew up in Australia. I'm fourth generation Australian. And of course, my parents' garden was in a subtropical area in Queensland. So I had all the best opportunities and all the freedom in the world. So I spent a lot of time alone and much of it was just watching stuff. Yeah. And then you continued that for the rest of your professional life. I did. Well, and, and, my, and my private life, you know. <laughs> it's not just professional. I mean, observing nature did become part of my work. And um, presently I'll tell a couple of stories of how that was really valuable. Well, you've described the importance of listening to insects, you know, creating relationships with them so that you can come to understand how and why they behave the way they do. Right. And you did that from when you were very young and have continued on. Yes. This kind of observation has helped you to help other people involved with agriculture yes. over the years. Can you tell us some, uh, a few of those times? I can tell a couple of stories. Um, I became... Um, a British government scientist um, in the 60s. And in 1970, I'd got my new job there. And part of my job was to work on pests in developing countries to help uh, regulate population problems. So one of my projects, I was sent to Nigeria to work on a grasshopper pest that was really defoliating, eating all the cassava plants. You know, cassava is what we get um, tapioca from, Uh but it's a major food source for the Nigerians now, even though it was introduced from South America. Anyway, their crops were being destroyed by this particular grasshopper. And so the question was, why have they become so abundant and how do we regulate the population? Well, it was a three-year study, so but we did get answers. And it all started by seeing a butterfly feeding on the black ooze coming out of the anus of one of these dead grasshoppers. Well, wouldn't you wouldn't think that was very interesting. In fact, you might think it was rather disgusting. But the interesting thing was that I knew this butterfly normally just fed on nectar, and on a certain chemical in plants. And that certain chemical they needed to make their sex pheromone. Now, why was this butterfly feeding on this black ooze? It wasn't for the the sugar, it was for that chemical. I decided that was an interesting way to look. And sure enough, we found that these grasshoppers were feeding on plants with this chemical and sequestering it in their bodies. And if they died, this black ooze came out with this chemical in it, which attracted the butterflies. So then the question was, what were the grasshoppers doing with this chemical? Interestingly, it was a long, a bit of work, but we discovered that it too was making a odor, a pheromone that was important in their lives. It wasn't a sex pheromone. But it was a change, that the, the same kind of change the butterfly made to the chemical to make a pheromone. And this pheromone was used to tell other grasshoppers, come over here. 
Now that might sound odd, but we did discover this. And then the next question was, well, why were they doing that? Why did they want to be in a group? And it took a while to discover this because in Nigeria, in this hot, humid, tropical place, people work early and they go indoors at about 11 and come back out in the hour later in the afternoon. And everything was happening at midday. So we, we followed these groups and they became enormous around midday. So no one had noticed them before because no one's, in, no one's outside at that time of day. <laughs> anyway, the story got more interesting because it turns out these huge groups, thousands and thousands of grasshoppers, all collected from two or three acres into one spot. And there they laid their eggs in the ground. Well, maybe that's not interesting, but in fact it became the basis for how to regulate these populations because in a whole two-acre area there would be only one such group and all their eggs were there and all the farmers had to do was to dig up that patch. And the only thing they had to do differently from normal was to go out there at the right time and find where those groups were, were gathering. Once they knew it and marked it, they could come back later and dig them up. Well, that was the theory, and so, but we had to test it before we could promulgate it. And we did. We, we took some very large areas. We found six groups of these um, grasshoppers laying all their eggs. And in three of them, we dug up those things, just as we thought the farmers might be able to do. And what we found was we could reduce the population by 98%. 98? Wow. <laughs> so it was a very easy cultural method of controlling the grasshoppers, and that was what we used in um, ex- extending our knowledge to them and, and giving them advice on how to regulate this pest. So, but it all started with being observing a butterfly. Yes, and it didn't take one bit of pesticide. No, well, that's my whole theme, really, never to use chemicals if we can possibly help it because it's destroying a lot more than we know. Well, as you were just saying, you, um, at that time, were working for the British government in London, based in London, but traveling to these other places. And then you served on the faculty at Berkeley, but were whisked away and to serve as the head, head of entomology, the entomology department at the University of Arizona. Yes, that's right. Yes. Well, it was, I mean, I enjoyed these agricultural problems because I could put my observational abilities to good use. And we had one in India too, which was really terrific because we, it was a moth that the caterpillars fed on the sorghum plants and it took only one caterpillar to kill a plant. So they were very destructive. And as they would go down into the new chute and eat the growing point. Anyway, observations early in the morning showed that these babies that were, the eggs were laid at the bottom of the plant. And when their babies hatched early in the morning, they climbed to the top of the plant in order to get down into the soft little beginning leaves and so we found that on the resistant plants the wax was the wrong chemistry they didn't recognize the plant and so they never made it to the feeding spot 
And it was easy to deal with that because we know the chemistry of the wax and the genes that cause the production of the different chemicals in the wax. So a little bit of gene work and those plants with the most productive um, fruits could be made resistant by changing the gene combination for the wax. So again, it was all based on observation. And not many people want to lie out in the mud at five o'clock in the morning, but <laughs> but you do. <laughs> we found it out and we got an answer. So anyway, that's just a couple of examples. Yes. Yeah, so on the basis of my work, I um, I was lucky enough to get a job in Berkeley, and that of course was a bit of a culture shock. <laughs> I would guess, but very exciting. Very exciting because a lot of different minds and viewpoints and that was where my basic research really flourished. And uh, yeah, so some time there and I became an American (laughs) and finally um, came to Arizona as head of entomology. Yeah, and then in later years, you took on acquiring an MFA in creative writing. and Yes, I did that. This is a skill that you applied to documenting your life as an entomologist in the book Six Legs Walking. And one reviewer wrote of that book, uh, this is a quote, molting insects are indeed sheer poetry, but capturing that poetry in words is a feat only Liz has accomplished. How have you found that writing and entomology inform each other? Well, they do in a sense that... um In writing about anything, really, the details are what make it interesting. And I'm a detailed person, as well as having broad interest in theory. And bringing the stories of insects to life and to make them exciting means telling the details. So in a way, it works quite well with my overall interest in all the details of how animals do their stuff. So they just complemented each other. Yeah, exactly. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. You know, there's another thing that I know about you from from reading your bio on the the website and just from the bit of chatting that we've been able to do. I know that you've had your fair share of grief, and I wonder about how grief has informed your science and your writing and your thinking about climate change. One of the things that, that you said about yourself was that the meaning of home and art and the importance of sharing our lives with the rest of the living world is important. Well, that's true. But I think, you know, sad days in childhood took me out to see the butterflies and tell verses to the ladybugs. Grief as an adult, especially after the death of my husband and soulmate, takes me out into the wilderness where observing every bird or lizard or moth or beetle 
made me aware of the shortness and glory of our lives in which the smallest creatures can inspire us. And so that has really been a major comfort in my life. Yeah, this love of the natural world is something that gives back immediately. Um, yeah, I, I guess I want to return to your story of, of coming to love the natural world as a child. And in your most recent book, Across the Divide, you describe your love affair with your wife, Linda, and you tell how, although the two of you are very different in many ways, you certainly share a love of nature and of being rebels. <laughs> so how did those two things blend for the two of you, loving nature and being rebels? Talk about that some. Well, they're, they're pretty different. I mean, in the, in the terms of the loving nature, it, it ties in with my research in general because one of the elements that affected me most in becoming a rebel was that some scientists would come out with theories without actually um, the facts to go with it. And it was important for me to put my foot in the thing and say, well, let's just look and see if that makes sense in nature. And it turns out that I, I upended quite a few fancy theories just because I knew better, because I saw I was the one who looked out there and saw what was happening. And sometimes these theories are highfalutin and sound wonderful, but actually they're not based on reality. So the, the being a rebel was important in the success of my career. And then, I mean, even marrying Linda was being a rebel because she's so different. And my academic friends didn't get it. <laughs> Describe that for our listeners, how the two of you are different. Well, um, my my wife is a, dropped out of school at 14 and she's from Texas and she comes from a family that is not educated and uh, that didn't think she had to go to school. Whereas I was brought up by um, parents that had a major historic people in their background and were very proud of it and taught me to be very proud of it. And also we had very strict rules about how to do our things, you know, like how to hold our knives and forks and how to do all the mannerisms that were appropriate to our class, uh -huh. so to speak. So we were opposites in every way, background, education, class, mm -hmm. whatever you call class, socioeconomic background. We couldn't have been more different. And the other thing is I am I have a, a slow, methodical brain and Linda has a fast brain, you know. She could have done stand-up. And so we're totally opposite in that respect too. I mean, I focus on one thing and get it done. Linda has her mind on 20,000 things at once and <laughs> it, she can absorb input from a lot of different places all at once. So we have very different brains. <laughs> well, I know that your book was recently released yeah, and that it's gotten some great reviews. Yes, people, I think um, there's a lesson there in how to learn to understand other people and tolerate difference. But it's, 
it, it, it's in a way it's just another study. It's like studying another insect. You're studying a person who's so different, you know. So yes. it has an interest all of its own. So that's been fun, and of course, um, the other thing is um, Linda's interested in everything and uh, has a good brain, and she's absorbed a lot of facts, so she knows a lot more things about areas I don't know. So we're we're complementary in some level, and I've had a lot of fun um, telling her about my stories about insects and showing her things, and she's become quite the naturalist herself. So that's been fun too. I believe that. Yes, that's wonderful. Well, I think that, you know, this is very fascinating to me as a person who's uh, done so much, spent so much time learning about the social sciences. This map uh, between, not, not a map, it's just inquiry is inquiry. Observation is observation. Mm-hmm. And so, so what, what would you say about here we are, looking out on this world in different ways, how it looks to me is different than how it looks to you, but we can listen to how it looks to each other and can think together about what might be some good or the best ways to move forward. And so when you consider that, what, what strikes you from the, the life experience you've had what makes it so that you can move forward? And what would you suggest to listeners for how to move forward in these times of climate breakdown and with many of our listeners' desires to be part of climate repair? Well, I'm not an expert on the climate issue, but I do think that the more people become aware of the importance of the living world outside of humans, Um, the more they'll absorb the significance of why they have to keep it. I think it's a long-term project, but I think teachers and parents have a big role to play in helping young people develop that interest. And that's why I'm interested and why I wrote Six Legs Walking, because I want to interest other people in why it's interesting and why it's important to look at other animals and see how they cope and and how interesting that is so that others can also take some concern for what's happening in the world as opposed to just ignoring it. And I think, I mean, I've taken an interest in this particular issue for some time and when I first came to Tucson and I was head of a department here, I worked with Tucson Unified School District and helped a lot of teachers here how to develop um, classes with living insects and how to study them with children. And children automatically are interested in insects. And I think it was a way to help them develop that interest instead of learning to say, ooh. (laughs) so, So that was one of the projects that I was really interested in here until I got too busy. But um, I am interested also in writing popular stories about insects and other animals that might attract people other than the entomologists (laughs) and biologists so that they can take more of an interest in the world around them. Because I think getting really interested in the world around you is what's going to make people care more about climate change. 
Well, and one bit of evidence that you have is um, with Linda, that that she herself is just a natural learner and a mm-hmm. natural scholar, really, in spite of her having left school, formal schooling early. She doesn't stop her. She's still mm-hmm. learning all the time. Yeah. So that's a person that you've seen learn. What do you observe in people? What gets them captivated? You were speaking of the children. And have you watched in your observation, have you watched what happens following that? Like you've had so many students how do people get hooked and then really commit to the natural world? Well, of course, the students I've had the most contact with have been graduate students because they're with me in the lab for three to five years. So I get to know them as people and and they have mostly taken on my enthusiasm for observation to help understand even the complex theories and they have continued, a lot of them have done really well in their professional careers, and a lot of them have used the same um, ideals that um, have influenced me. So in that sense, I feel like I've done a little tiny thing that might be good. <laughs> um, with the school children, I, I wasn't able to watch beyond the classes that I, I helped develop, But I was just astonished at how exciting they all found it. And here in Tucson, every year, there's an insect festival that's held on campus, run by the entomology department. And uh, I go there and see all these kids. They're just so excited by all the things they can do and see and eat there. Insect food and um, pollinating insects and all these caterpillars that I give them and all sorts of things about the genes and uh, the bees. And it's it's amazing to see them. And I feel like this insect festival is an, another good thing to help young people get into animals, especially insects, which we do have to preserve or we're done. Yes, thank you for that. That's absolutely true. Well, are there any last things that you would want to leave <laughs> with our listeners, any bit of advice or encouragement, anything come to mind? With the danger of, you know, repeating myself, I think I, I would want to just say that to anyone who hasn't spent a lot of time, be aware of the life around you and watch the buds open and the bees collecting pollen and the butterflies courting and the caterpillars feeding fast to allow safe rest times. Take time to wonder and admire from the troubles of our time. And I think such involvement can inspire. I think they can re-invite a love of the world and a love of the world is what we need now. I think it can refresh our brains just like music can. And I think we need these things to give us strength to fight for what is good and for what we need in this planet we call home. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Bernays, thank you for this time and thank you for your lifetime of devotion to the natural world that stemmed initially from your curiosity and wonder. Um, That is just good Uh, for all of us. It's been a real pleasure to be able to say my thing 
and maybe a few more people will start watching themselves. So thank you very much. Yes. Oh, you're so welcome. You can learn more about Dr. Elizabeth Bernays' work and life at her website, elizabethbernays.com. But don't miss checking her out on Google. There you'll find jewels of literary nonfiction like Kumquat, Time in the Desert, and Pond. Along the way, treat yourself to her books, Six Legs Walking, Notes from an Entomological Life, and Across the Divide, The Strangest Love Affair. We'll make sure to leave plenty of links in the show notes. Then you can let yourself be captivated by Liz's wonder, awe, and kinship with the natural world, a delight that carries a sense of truly coming home. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational project of full ecology. How It Looks From Here is produced by me, Mary Claire. Editing by Gary Ferguson. Music by Gary Ferguson and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.